Pump Fakes and Bad Takes, a podcast featuring Joel Silverberg and Andy Sellers. The guys will bring you discussion on the balls, the rest of the college football landscape, and more. You'll hear analysis, game predictions, and you'll quickly find out why they call him Bad Take Andy. Pump Fakes and Bad Takes on Sports Radio WNML.com. Home fakes and bad takes returns in a couple weeks off earlier this month, but we appreciate you keeping up with us on iTunes and on sports radio, WNML.com. I'm Joel Silverberg alongside bad take Andy. He's at bad take Andy WNML on Twitter. I'm at Joel Silverberg. Good to be back. Tennessee, some big news in basketball earlier this week. And then, Finding out in football, where's Jeremy Pruitt ranked CBS Sports in a list compiled by Tom Fornelli, but voted on by multiple members of the CBS Sports college football staff, ranking the 65 Power 5 college football coaches. Where does Jeremy Pruitt rank? What does the rest of the SEC look like? We'll talk about that uh, as well. And quickly getting right into it with Tennessee basketball, it's been very interesting for Tennessee when it has come to the front court positions. You have... Admiral Schofield and Kyle Alexander leaving, obviously. Then Grant Williams decides he's going to test the NBA waters, and it's looking more and more like he's probably going to be selected if he opts to enter the draft. Now, he he does have the decision upcoming whether he's going to stay through the draft process or if he's going to return to school. If he stays in the draft process and if he were to go unselected, I don't think that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Then he has the option to the following Monday to return to school, uh, but essentially the the decision coming up later this month with the combine combine coming up on May 15th is if he's going to stay in the draft or return to school. If he stays in the draft, Grant Williams is going to be selected and it seems likely that he could be taken anywhere mid to late in the first round, but appears to be somewhere a, in that a 20 very, range, a very potential first round selection. Yeah. He's going to be great. I, I, I think Vol fans need to get on board with the fact that he's probably not coming back. If he does decide to come back, it's going to be because he either doesn't like the team that he's projected to go to or he thinks he can do better. But um, John Wilkerson said in the previous weeks that why would you risk coming back and not doing as well as you have and then hurting your draft stock even more? I mean, you've already won SEC Player of the Year back-to-back years. If you don't win it your senior year, that's a negative on you when it shouldn't be. So I I would be surprised to see him come back. I would be more... um, I would believe easier that Jordan Bone would come back than I would Grant Williams, although I think they're both probably gone. Yeah, it's it's actually more likely that Grant Williams comes back. Jordan Bone, with everything that we've heard up to this point, Jordan Bone is planning on staying through the process regardless. And unless somebody, unless NBA scouts were to tell him directly, the only way that you can improve your draft stock is with another year in Knoxville, and I don't think that's going to happen. I think Jordan Bone is convinced that whether it's being selected late in the second round and Sports Illustrated released their top 60 prospects list uh, earlier after the entry, the early entry deadline had passed. That doesn't mean he's going to get drafted, right? but that means that at least some traction, somebody out there believes that Jordan Bone has some draft stock that might be rising and a team could take him. Again, we've, we've seen it in this situation before a few years ago with Josh Richardson. We weren't really sure if Richardson was going to be selected. We knew that he was a fringe pick if at all. And then, of course, the Heat took him late in the second round, and he's been there ever since, and he's done quite well for himself. So 
the Heat have not had a whole lot of success overall, but Josh Richardson, he's made himself some money from playing basketball, I think, for Jordan Bone. Whether it's going to the NBA, going to the G League, or going overseas, I think he's ready to start making some money playing basketball, and he'll be able to do it. He's got the skill to do it at the very least overseas, which is not a bad gig with the way that some of these overseas leagues pay their players. Worked for Chris Lofton. Yeah, so. dude. You can build a career doing it, and then some of these guys do get second opportunities at the NBA and are able to come back, um, but... Uh, we've seen some very successful college players go and play overseas, but uh, it's more likely that Grant Williams would come back instead of Jordan Bone, not based on stock, more so based on interest in returning to school. Yeah, agreed. And for Jordan Bone, it's just a matter of he's done playing basketball for free. So uh, uh, assuming if if we were to play the game where we assume that Williams and Bone are both God, and then you're losing three post players right there. Derek Walker has then entered the transfer portal and will likely not be back next year after his production and his minutes went down this season. So it kind of leaves Tennessee thin at the post. You're left with John Fulkerson essentially returning mm. for this season. And then you have DJ Burns who spent his red shirt year going through the strength and conditioning program. There has not been a whole lot said about him, but he is the highest rated player coming out of high school that is currently on Tennessee's roster. And then five-star guard Josiah James uh, will obviously uh, remove DJ Burns of that, uh, that standing on Tennessee's roster. But you do have, a number of guys coming in. You had Drew Pember out of Bearden, who is big, but he's thin, so probably needs to bulk up a little bit more. Well, now Tennessee gets another power forward earlier this week. Olivier robinson Camwa is officially committed to the Tennessee basketball program. He committed earlier this week and has also now signed his letter of intent. So he will join Tennessee's roster this upcoming season. He's expected to enroll in classes next month. Uh, playing high school ball in Maryland after moving here to the U.S. from Finland, broke his leg, missed his entire junior year, but has picked up steam during his senior year, and that's a big get for Tennessee in the front court. I mean, a lot of people, when they look at this, if they don't do any research on it, will say, well, he's a three-star. Well, he just got his fourth star over the weekend, and he's only got that three-star because he was out his entire, pretty much the entire junior year. If he was able to play that, I think he would be a five-star. I think this is a diamond in the rough, someone that, that is undervalued because they didn't get to see him play. And you factor that in with what we've seen Rick Barnes be able to uh, coach and improve and grow players under his system. I think this is a perfect fit. I think this is going to make it to where maybe this year isn't a great season for the Vols by comparison of last year. But I think in two years, you'll be right back to where you are. Yeah, and, and that's we, we see that sometimes where an injury kind of stalls a recruit's progression and he's been looked at as a three-star, a four-star, depending on the recruiting service. 247 Sports has him as a three-star, but the 247 Composite Rankings has him as a four. Either way, it, at, at this point, I think when you look at his circumstance, it doesn't really matter at this point. Tennessee is going to try to find a way to develop him as best they can, and they may need him to help immediately because Tennessee has to figure out a front court situation with Schofield and Alexander being gone, Williams likely being gone. Uh, but Olivier Robinson Camwa, a, a very nice get for Tennessee, 6'8", 210 pounds, a little thin there, could probably hit the training regimen a little bit as what really helped Schofield and Williams during their time at Tennessee, uh, but has a really good jump shot. He's got some range for his size, and so he could kind of insert him and hopefully maybe start to replace a little bit, not nearly to the full extent, but replace a little bit of the role that Grant Williams had, as you saw later in his career, was starting to work on his three-point shot, was starting to increase his range, and Olivier has that. It's just a matter of can he play the post effectively in the college game because watching his highlight tape, 
He's very skilled with the basketball in his hands. There's no doubt about that. He's got good range for a guy that's 6'8". That's a nice trait to have. The problem is, is that watching this highlight game, he is easily the tallest and biggest player on the floor. That's not going to be the case when he starts playing SEC basketball. Yeah, what, what's going to happen when he sees someone who's even with him? And that that's... I think the the biggest growing pain that any college athlete's going to have is most of these college athletes, regardless of the sport, were the best player in their high school, and now they're facing against an all-star team essentially every day. So I think how they adapt to that will determine how successful he is ultimately, and I think he's in the right hands with Coach Barnes. So Tennessee basketball getting a big addition. Again, Drew Pember, Devontae Gaines, Josiah James, and now Olivier robinson Camwa the four members of the 2019 signing class. So they will join uh, DJ Burns, who's already redshirted and is already in the program, as some of the new faces that you might be able to see this season. Josiah James is going to be big, helping Lamonte Turner and Jordan Bowden in Tennessee's backcourt and ankle that anchor that side of Tennessee's, uh, Tennessee's game, which I think you're going to be seeing an entirely different scheme being rolled out there, whereas before Tennessee was balanced, probably leaning a little bit more towards being front court led. Well, now it's going to be a backcourt led team, especially on offense. Yep. At least his first year. We'll see what happens as time goes on. Yeah. And if DJ Burns can come out and be a really big player for you immediately, well, then that's great. I'm really excited about him. Really excited about him. So CBS Sports ranked the 65 Power 5 coaches, which this is something that they do every year. And so... Uh, these rankings also include where these coaches ranked uh, last season if they were in said position. And so it ranks all 65 Power 5 conferences. So none of Tennessee's non-conference opponents are listed. West Virginia being replaced by BYU. Uh, so Coach Satake out of BYU is not listed. Uh, but all the SEC opponents that Tennessee is going to play this season are here as well. So you can kind of gauge where Jeremy Pruitt ranks on there. And Jeremy Pruitt comes in at 52. And this is what Tom Fernelli has to say about Tennessee's Head coach went five and seven last year, two and six in the SEC in his first season at UT, and that was enough to move him up five spots in our rankings. He was 57th last year. Uh, Derek Mason is 53rd after going five and seven during the 2017 season, and then went six and seven last year, six and six with a bowl game loss. Goes on to say about Pruitt, Vandy's team had a better season and beat Pruitt's Vols for what it's worth. He had Mason at 47 and Pruitt at 54 in his personal ballot, but. He ends it by saying, you're welcome, Tennessee sports radio stations, as something to talk about. But Pruitt being 52nd out of 65, part of it's going to be based on resume. Part of it's going to be on achievement. Jeremy Pruitt has had one season as a college head football coach. He went 5-7. and seven. He lost six games by 25 points or more. I don't know how you could really be upset at the rankings. I, there's also a lot of first-year head coaches, and there's a lot of guys that you're still trying to figure out where their tenures are really going to go because while last season overall was more of a failure than a success, you had some nice moments with the wins over Auburn and Kentucky. There's nothing conclusive you could say about Jeremy Pruitt's first year at Rocky Top. Yeah, I don't like him being 52. Uh, I, I think he should be better than that. But if you're going off just the stats, I understand why he's there. And with it being his his first season under his belt, um, I think coming in into this in the next season after this year, I would be surprised to see him not be at least middle, upper half of the pack uh, instead of only having three teams behind him. But uh, I think he makes some fair points there. He he didn't have a great season. They had a couple wins. You can chalk those up to being flukes if you want. You could say they beat high-quality opponents if you want. That's really up to your own interpretation on that. Until we see a more set pattern of how things are going to go, 
I think you you kind of have to put him there. So Derek Mason from Vanderbilt is ranked at 53rd. He was 50th last year for what that's worth. That is the only opponent Tennessee will play where the coach is ranked lower than Jeremy Pruitt on this list. Barry Odom is at 49. He Missouri was a team that, you know, they went 4-8 and eight in 2016. And then they are bowl teams the, la- the, nec- the next couple of years, including, you know, the beatdown of Tennessee for Tennessee Senior Day last season, which nobody was happy about. But with Missouri, you're a couple of flukes away from being a 10-win team. And Jeremy Pruitt acknowledged that the week that they played Missouri. Still, he hasn't accomplished a whole lot in the time that he's been with the Tigers. So 49, I get that. Joe Moorhead is 48 at Mississippi State, and Tennessee is going to meet the Bulldogs this season as well. And that's with a team that was very good defensively. Boy, you're losing a lot of talent. Montez Sweat, Jonathan Abram, and Jeffrey Simmons, who was a first-round pick to the Tennessee Titans. So can Moorhead kind of figure out, plus you're losing Nick Fitzgerald, so can Moorhead kind of figure out everything that he's got coming back after all the players that he's lost and try to get that turned around in a pretty tough SEC West? Yeah, he... Mississippi State lost a lot. Ole Miss lost a lot. Um, and it looks like LSU is only getting better. So it, it's going to be tough for him this year. I kind of like him where he's at. Um, really, the, the last half of, of how they've ranked the SEC coaches, I, I agree with in relation to where they are in the SEC. Um, I don't know that I would have even put him up at 48th. I, I might have dropped him back to 50 or, or maybe just 51. But you're, you're talking such a small number there. Um, I think he's got potential to do well there, and I think if they can continue to grow that, he'll he'll do fine. I don't ever see Mississippi State becoming a top-five team in the next 10 years. So I, I think he's going to be kind of that middle ceiling with a mid-floor. I don't think he's going to ruin your program, but I don't think he's going to get you ultimately where you want to go. Mark Stoops at Kentucky is 39, and Fornelli kind of admits that's based on merit. Being able to win 10 games at Kentucky, that's not that doesn't happen very often, so putting him in the top 40 is more of a heads-up to Mark Stoops. 35 is where Will Muschamp is at South Carolina. And so, I, you know, South Carolina, should they be able to win more games after seeing what Spurrier did? Now, Spurrier's an all-time coach, and so I get that. Will Muschamp is more respected than I think maybe giving credit for for the way things ended when he was at Florida. But at the same time, you look where Clemson's at. Tennessee fans complain about having to play Alabama every year. South Carolina has to play Clemson every year. And that's that's not any easier. So South Carolina has to play Georgia and Clemson. Last year, their over-under win total was set at 7.5. And And you think, well, the South Carolina team is so much more improved, they should be able to get there. Well, the problem is... I picked them to win the East. Yeah. So the problem is... You have to go up against Clemson and Georgia. Now, nobody was picking them to win the East, but not overwhelmingly. Right. But at the same time, you thought, man, eight wins should have been attainable. When you look at the strength of schedule that they have, and it doesn't get any easier this season, <laughs> it's a tough job in South Carolina right now when you consider what Dabo Sweeney's doing over at Clemson because it adds that non-conference game at the end of your season where, man, there, there's so much on the line for Clemson, that's going to be a tough game to win. So 35 for Will Muschamp, you're kind of throwing him right in the middle there. And then you start getting into some of the other coaches that Tennessee is going to see that crack the top 25. And that's going to include Dan Mullen at Florida. That's going to include Nick Saban at Alabama. And that's going to include Kirby Smart at Georgia. All three of them are in the top 10. Mullen at Florida is 10. Smart at Georgia is six. And then Nick Saban, of course, at Alabama is number one. And you got A&M at five, even though we don't 
play them this year. Um, it, yeah, Jimbo Fisher, another SEC coach. I, I, I think LSU is exactly where they should be. Last year they were 56th, and I think that was accurate as well. But they had such a good season, and either Orgeron is better than I think he is, or he's found a way to make something happen that shouldn't have last year, and it'll fall off this year. So I'm fine leaving him at 30 for now. If he does the same thing this year they did last year, he needs to be in the top 15. But sometimes when you look at LSU, as he he mentioned in the article, it's more about LSU makes you good rather than you making LSU good. And, and I, I can understand that. He said the same thing about Les Miles when he was there. Uh, I don't know that that's necessarily the case because LSU wasn't great the entire time. But I like them being there. South Carolina, I feel like... Will Muschamp should be a little higher, maybe in the 29, 27 range, somewhere in there, just because of what he has to go up against every year and the fact that he's still able to make a, a competitive team every year. They, they don't win 10 games every year, but they're competitive in a lot of their games. They're not blown out a, a lot. Um, and I think that's a big difference here. That, that I, don't, I don't think they really reviewed that. As, it's not just how many games you win and lose. It's how you win and lose those games. Um, Auburn, I think, is too high. I think Gus Malzahn is way too high at 24. Uh, I, I think Florida should be probably in the 15 to 19 range. I think they're too high. Georgia at 6. Uh, you could argue they could go up to 4, but I think that's fine. A&M at 5. I don't know that I buy that yet because we haven't seen Fisher be great in the last 2-3 years. And, of course, Saban at 1, I think, is spot on. Yeah, I, I think with Malzahn, too, part of the credit for him is that now he's dropped significantly out of the rankings. He was 14th is, last year. Which yeah. is part of it. So it's it's not as if he's being praised for being 24th, but uh, he's also one of few coaches that has appeared in a national championship game. That number continues to get smaller every year with when you have Dabo Sweeney and Nick Saban constantly playing for national championships. I think for Ed Orgeron... Moved him up significantly, having him at 30. He does suffer, I think, from the narrative of, you know, it's LSU. Les Miles was struggling his last couple of years there. And when Ed Orgeron took over in the interim, man, there were some boneheaded coaching decisions mm-hmm. in that interim season. But in the last two years since, he's won 19 games. And that's a really good coaching job, as, as much as you would hate to admit it. But it's also, you look back at the failures that he had at Ole Miss, that's probably working against him as well. So, this, you would kind of think, all right, so is this going to be more conclusive? Because LSU also just had a really good recruiting class. So if this, LSU, this year will determine a lot about this. Yeah. So if, if they, if they win, if they go nine and three, 10 and two, nine and three, I think fans will be disappointed. But you also have to think you're going up against Jimbo Fisher and Nick Saban. So it, that is tough to find ways to win games. But they also steamrolled Georgia last year. So they've beaten good teams. Even though it was at home, they've still beaten good teams. So. If now if they go nine and three and that third loss is to a team they have no business losing to, that's one thing. If it's a really really competitive SEC opponent, well then that's something else you can look at. But if you're going nine and three, ten and two again, should fans be disappointed? Yes. Does that mean Ed Orgeron's done a bad coaching job? I don't think so. When you consider this has kind of been a revenge tour for him, and so far, nineteen wins in two seasons. Uh, is not bad with several top ten wins last year as well. If you can go ten and two in the SEC West, having to play Alabama and A and M, and then whoever your and East Auburn. opponent and Auburn, whoever Auburn, your Auburn's East not, opponent is. Auburn's had very disappointing seasons. It's not as if they're devoid of talent and they don't have a good coach. Gus Malzahn is somewhat 
achieved in his career. Uh, now, he's on the hot seat this year, don't get me wrong, but it's not like Auburn's a bad loss. Gus on coach teams are always built like a basketball team. They make a solid base to where they'll, they'll win some games, but they need one-star player to be great. And when he gets that one-star player, he's fantastic. When he doesn't have it, the team struggles. And so I, I, I think that's the biggest knock on him. I don't feel like you can be a top-10 coach if you have to rely on one superstar player to make your team. Same way Butch Jones was. If he has a great quarterback that can run a system, he can win some games. He can show some things. If he doesn't have it, the team falls apart. So Tennessee ranked behind seven of the eight Power 5 teams that are on the schedule. No non-conference Power 5 matchups this year. So looking ahead into the top 10, you see Mullen at 10. Very good first season at Florida. A Highly overachieved, and they're going to be expected to do more this season. Kirby Smart being at six at Georgia. His last two seasons have been phenomenal. They've come so close to knocking uh, knocking off Alabama. They've won an SEC title already and uh, nearly made the college football playoff again. Then Nick Saban back at one. Outside the SEC, are there any rankings that really stand out to you, whether too high or too low? Yeah, I, I don't really like Washington. Chris Peterson at three. Last year he was at five, and I felt like that was okay after the season that they had. But he did not have; they did not have a good season this year. And, and they won the Pac-12. They still didn't have a good season. That was a really bad conference. Yeah, but I mean, they still won the Pac-12 and made a New Year's Six Bowl. I, I don't. I didn't. I don't think they're as good as their record shows. I think they played in a weak conference where a lot of people beat up on each other, and they were fortunate to win that when they really shouldn't have. Um, See, so he he went fifteen and twelve in his first two seasons. Since then, they're thirty-two and nine. I get that they've won two of the Pac-12 titles the last three seasons, and they had a playoff berth in sixteen. Uh, my issue with him is I I think he should be uh, maybe at ten. Uh, I I could see him more at ten than at at three. He's a top ten coach. I don't think he's top three. I don't I don't think he's able to put it together. Every single year, and part of it maybe that he's at Washington, and it's hard to get players hurt him there. And, and I'm me, I mean, and maybe put well, the other one. You've got Washington State's Mike Leach, and I think he's probably a. Top, I, I would have no problem putting him as as a top fifteen coach. I, I even at twelve, I could see him and Mike Gundy being interchangeable as far as coaching prowess. I I get it that he's a, a system guy, but a system guy doesn't mean that he's not really good at that system. I think with Lincoln Riley. You've got him at fourth, and there's probably some controversy there because it, the jury's still out. Is this really him, or is he inheriting Bob Stoops' system? Bob Stoops' system, but he might be up in line for an NFL job. What he has done is he's taken two grad transfer quarterbacks and won Heisman trophies with them in back-to-back years, and taken them to have improved a little bit mm-hmm. with a football standpoint because Texas was a lot better. West Virginia threatened uh, for Houston, but I, I do think that Lincoln Riley has shown through those two seasons that what well, he's done a lot to keep that program afloat. And so I think Lincoln Riley deserves a lot of credit. Uh, Chris Peterson's a top five coach to me, just with everything that he did at Boise State and then has been able to program like in that Pac-12 with the reputation the Pac-12 has right now. You're right. Tough to get players out there. Washington hadn't won in a while. Who ended up being a top 10 pick as a quarterback in the NFL. They weren't winning games. And so Chris Peterson goes there and he's able to win with Jake Browning. He's able to win the Pac-12 in a year where Jake Browning is playing through some injuries, is still there all season, but he's not the Jake Browning that you saw a couple years before that. Browning was really well thought of um, by the time he was a sophomore. In the last two years, it it just hasn't gone Washington's way. But I think for 
Peterson, what he's been able to do at programs that just haven't had a lot of success, really deserves some merit. And then with Mike Leach, I agree with you. I think maybe he needs to be higher than 20. He also has not, and it's kind of the same thing with Peterson here, is Peterson and Leach have never coached a big-time program. They've right. coached power, power Five teams. Washington, Texas Tech, Washington State are all Power Five programs. They're not big-time college football programs. Are you really coaching Coaching at Oklahoma, Texas, Texas A&M when they were in the Big 12? Missouri was in the Big 12. It's not the same thing. It's, so, it's the Vanderbilt of that conference. Yeah, so those guys are able to win at places that weren't able to win before. So if they have more resources, then how good can they be? Because Chris Peterson has been offered big-time jobs in the past, and he's chosen not to take them. And, he was offered and the Tennessee job. People thought he was never going to leave Boise State, and then Washington just kind of came out of nowhere, and he was able to have success there as well. So two Pac-12 titles in the last three seasons after going 15-12 and 12 his first two years there, I think he's done a great job with that program. He's well thought of as being one of those elite coaches if he was to be at an elite school. And that's kind of what separates him there. I think for Mike Leach, it's a little bit of the same thing. Now, he's had trouble quite getting over the hump because he he's had that one season at Texas Tech where, man, could they really press for the Big 12 the year that they beat Texas when Colt McCoy was there and he had Michael Crabtree at Texas Tech with Graham Harrell setting passing records and then they got blown out by Oklahoma, mm -hmm. missed out on the Big 12. And then at Washington State, you have Gardner Minshew, who's a Heisman finalist, and, man, they just blew it late in the season. And I think they got screwed in the USC game, but, man, when they blew the Apple Cup, everything kind of, you, you really looked at it from a perspective and thought, man, they just really missed an opportunity. There was still a great season for Washington State, but what we've seen from Mike Leach over the years has shown that he can really turn a program around. The same could be said about Peterson, too. Yeah, outside of that, I haven't had a ton of of issues with where people are. And a lot of this is, of course, based off the last two, three seasons. Um, Clemson at two, I, you could put Clemson at one, and I, I wouldn't have a problem with it. I, I think two is probably right because he hasn't had, Dabo hasn't had the consistency that Saban has just because he hasn't had as many years doing it. Um, I, I think percentage-wise he's there, but he just doesn't have the extra years on him. Um I mean, Saban's got five titles, so yeah. it's and, and Sweeney getting two in the last three years. It's obviously huge, but you look at Saban's resume, and there's nobody else that can compare. But I think there's a significant gap between the rest of the field. These are the only two coaches that have a national title at their current school. Jimbo Fisher didn't win one at Texas A&M. He got one at Florida State, and now Urban Meyer is gone. And you have Mac Brown and Les Miles returning to the college game at different schools. They're not going to win titles at the schools they're at right now. Les Miles isn't winning at Kansas. Mac Brown's not winning at North Carolina. So you have two coaches that have actually won in their current situation. So if Clemson or Alabama doesn't win the national championship this upcoming year, we will see something totally new. We'll see a coach winning at a school they've never won at before. So it's that's remarkable. That's where the college football landscape is right now. Yeah, I... I... I really want to see Kansas do well this year. And well for them is probably going to be a seven-win season. But I, I, I really want to see Les Miles do well so that in a year or two he can jump into a, a true Power 5 school. Takes the Auburn job after Malzahn gets fired. I would love that. I mean, I don't ever want to face him again, ever. But I would love to see him come back to the SEC. He desperately, at least reports where he desperately wanted the Tennessee job when they were trying to hire Pruitt. And for whatever reason, they didn't go that route. I would have loved to have seen Les Miles in Tennessee Orange. I would have loved that. But I, I really am pulling for him. I want to see him get back to a true Power 5 school. Who is the next coach to 
join the fraternity of national championship winning coaches. Ooh, next one to join. So one that hasn't currently won it. Correct. That's a tough one. Um, I would probably go maybe Mullen. I mean, he was on a team that did, but he wasn't the head coach. I, I, right. I, I think he's got real potential being at Florida, being able to bring in the recruit, the, the classes that he's bringing in. Whether or not he can get past Georgia, I don't know. And whether or not he can get past Alabama, I don't know. Um, I could see him doing it. I, I, I really have a, I struggle to see anyone outside of the SEC come in and take that. Um, maybe Harbaugh, maybe, but I, I don't have a ton of faith in him. I think his experiment's about up. Still looking for a division title yeah. at Michigan for Jim Harbaugh. I mean, they, they're usually high ranked. They're usually a top five team. So I think he has the potential to get into the playoff and see what happens. That's, that's, pretty much where my, my thought for him is coming in at. But I I just don't – I mean, most of these other coaches have to do a lot just to get in the conversation of being in the playoff in the first place. Yeah, I would say Kirby Smart is probably my pick of of joining that those ranks of a national championship coach. He's been so close the last two years, and he continues to get top five recruiting classes. Kirby Smart right now with what he's doing at Georgia, he's too good to not win a national championship there. If he – fails to do so in his tenure while with the Bulldogs, I'll be very surprised, especially when you consider outside of Florida, he doesn't have to play Alabama every year. Auburn is the cross-division rival, which I don't think Auburn's in a great place, so Mm -hmm. there isn't an Alabama that you have to play every single year. You win the Florida game on a neutral field, it's hard to see anybody else in the SEC East dethroning you. So Georgia right now, in the next two or three seasons especially, could be primed to have a shot because I think they're right there with Alabama and Clemson as teams that can compete with each other for national championships. I think Georgia might be the next best program at this current state that is national championship ready outside of Alabama and Clemson. I, I worry with Georgia. The only reason I didn't, I didn't pick them is uh, they've had a lot of transfers in his short time there. He's, he's been great at getting players in, but I think he's struggling doing what Saban has done. It was saying, well, you're not playing because there's someone better. When maybe it's it's not as clear cut that there's someone better ahead of you, and so he's losing a lot of recruits. I could see that imploding uh, within the next two three years. It, it, it all depends on how well he manages that, but that comes down to management skill, and I don't know that he has that yet. So we will find out what these rankings could look like a year from now. But Jeremy Pruitt listed at 52 out of 65 power conference coaches. Again, just one year, so let's see what changes in year two. A lot of space for Jeremy Pruitt to move up. Nick Saban continues to be. Number one, and the season will get going in August when Georgia State comes to Neyland Stadium and Jeremy Pruitt will continue the campaign for year number two. We will be back next week on Pump Fakes and Bad Takes with Bad Take Annie. I'm Joel Silverberg. We appreciate you checking out the podcast on iTunes and on Sports Radio, WNML.com.